There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. G'day team. Welcome to another Warrior You podcast. Now, are you following me on Instagram yet? It's the best place to be part of the tribe. You can ask me questions, you can watch for podcast updates, and also be the first to see the cover reveal and hear any news around my new leadership book, Commando Way. So go and give us a follow, warrioru.australia. It's that easy, warrioru.australia. Or just look for me at Bram Connolly. Um, just don't follow any of the fake ones. Rightio. This week's podcast is sponsored by Aussie Strength. They have shipped, what, 5,000 home gyms out to Australians this year, and their stock is still coming into the warehouse. So check out their website, www.aussiestrength.com.au, and order yourself a home gym or some equipment that you need, stuff to get you through this lockdown and isolation, and even then, just stuff to keep you fit and healthy and strong. Also sponsoring this week's episode is the WHS Experts. That's whsexperts.com. They provide work, health and safety consulting to a wide range of industries across Australia and New Zealand. Uh, And they're still operating, working now. So if you need WHS solutions to supplement your business, go and check them out. Right, this week on the Warrior You podcast, I have a very special guest. Well, he's special to me. He's a great friend, a good bloke. He's comedian, radio host, media consultant, and all around, not a bad bloke, Merrick Watts. There wouldn't be too many Australians out there who haven't heard of Merrick. He was under constant radio contract for over 20 years. He's prolific on TV comedy shows, frequented comedy festivals all over Australia, and also selfless in visiting Australian troops in the Middle East. We're not the hardest worker in any room, which I have no doubt he is. Merrick is a wine connoisseur, a military history buff, he makes an amazing potato gnocchi, and he's a dad and a husband. This episode is the greatest and best podcast episode. Tribute. Merrick unlocks two decades of radio industry experience to help refine my own podcast and add value to my audience. We discuss the modern parameters for entertainment that has changed the way people can reach their tribes. There's something in this episode for absolutely everyone, from fast-moving jets providing an enemy with a show of force down Afghan valleys to legitimate social media lessons being shown by Brown Cardigan, also being owned on the mats by a previous American college wrestling champion, as well as sharks not living on land, and we talk about jumping into a body of water and being choked out by Paul Kale. This one is so good, gang. Check it out. Hey. Bram Connolly. Merrick Watts, the man, the myth, the legend. Hey, mate. Look at you wearing a dark shirt with a lighter background. It's like you live and breathe like you know stuff about media. 
Wait a second, wait. I'll show you. I'll put on a light that will light me up a little bit better so I'm less, uh, less intriguing. Hang on. Intriguing. I'm pretty intriguing, Bram, as you know, but now, yeah, it's actually not great lighting in here, is it? But I'm trying to set it up so it is. You've got a good head for podcasting. Thanks, mate. I get that a lot. <laughs> Look at you. You've got your cans on. That's better. You get your cans on and you've got a microphone. All I've got is my laptop. I've got all that equipment, of course, but I just haven't elected to use it. Yeah, um, I'm just not important enough for you to roll out the gold microphone that you got from John Laws when he retired. I'll get the glitter one from uh, Alan Jones soon from, from Good Boy. I mean, this is this is an X-rated expletive podcast. I'm not sure I can go with the next line of questioning. But anyway, mate, you can go with whatever you like. It's your podcast. Well, maybe we'll cover that. Maybe we'll cover that a little bit later in the podcast, Eric. Whatever you like, mate. Whatever you like. I will ask you, as a as a broadcast professional, Mm. would you like me to record my my voice in isolation here, so that you've got a clean feed of my voice that I can then send to you in a in a message? Oh. I can email you the audio. Oh, I've never thought of that before. That's a good idea. No, you haven't. haven't no, see, I've I haven't. got you on the back foot. I know. I know. This is. I thought you were elite, Bram. Come like, on, what are we doing here? This is like going to a to a I mean, gunfight with a knife. Um, yeah, exactly. This I've decided that this week's podcast will be called the greatest and best podcast ever created. Tribute. <laughs> oh my god! I made a comedian <laughs> laugh. <laughs> And it will be. No, I'm just laughing at your high expectations because I <laughs> intend not to deliver. So that's why I was laughing. <laughs> oh, great. Oh, well, that's, yeah, good. Nah, it's all good. The Bram, gi- I am going to record it at my end so that I've got a backup audio of, of an, a clean, what we call a clean feed in the business. Okay. And we're going to podcast today about podcasting. Wait, ready? That's your edit point. So Can you hear that? Good. Can you hear the music? You can't even hear the music. Oh, yeah. Welcome to the greatest and ever brilliantest podcast ever made. Tribute with Merrick and Bram. This is basically, what I'm basically doing here is applying for a job. (laughs) You're not doing a great job of it, Bram. Merrick Watts, probably the, uh, the longest serving Australian radio personality under contract at one time, I think is, it was the, uh, was some sort of accolade that you had? Is that right? Oh, it's pretty close. For FM, I did uh, I did twenty years of nonstop radio, which is um, oh, and I was under contract, uh, I think, for nineteen years. So the first year I was kind of on a uh, a part time, I think, from memory. And then if you include it, but yeah, twenty years, twenty years of radio. And in that time, in twenty years, I think I did. Uh, well, I was contracted to the breakfast or drive. Wow. Uh, breakfast in Sydney or drive nationally for that entire time, which is um, unusual to not have a break yeah. in between it. Um, and it was nonstop. And uh, it was, uh, I'll look back at it now. That was only a couple of years ago. I look back yeah. at it now and go, geez, that's a, that's a massive stint. Yeah. At the time, I didn't, didn't feel like a huge stint, but it was. It was a massive stint. And how many of, of those years weren't you on Rosso's shoulders? <laughs> oh well after 20 we worked together for, i think on air for at least i think 11 so oh, i wow. would say one one year <laughs> i didn't know that that you were together that long yeah american Russell, Russell. i started working together in uh i think 
95, 96 is when we started working together. Um, and then we started doing radio together. It actually, um, on Triple J in '98, mm. but we'd actually started. We actually did community radio for a dance. This is a little known fact, Brand. We actually started our breakfast radio career working with uh, another guy called Mark in Melbourne for Kiss FM, which was in Melbourne, not the current uh, iteration of Kiss FM. It was actually a dance music station in Melbourne, and neither Rosso nor I gave a shit about dance music right. um, and we certainly weren't there for the money, but we were there because it was, you know, it was an experience in radio and we only did that for, I think it was a, a community license, might have been a month or three months or something like that. Yeah, right. See, I, I don't know if you're the same with your industry, but I equate, whenever anyone says a date, I always equate it around to deployments or combat or this, that or the other. I think 1995, 90, I was in the United Kingdom on exchange with the... No, no, that was a couple of years before that. 97, 97 was the was the year that we raised the 4th Battalion Commando. So that's a couple of years before before that unit was raised. Do you do the same thing? Do you equate dates with, you know, someone might say to you, oh, this happened in 2003, and you go, yeah, that's when I won a whatever award. Yeah, it's... It's all the frame of reference, right. as you know, Brent. Mm, um, you know, if you've got a frame of reference to a, a point, funnily enough, for me, I think it's like you know, AC, you know, uh, BC and AD is that I, for me, it's actually um, I frame a lot of things around 2007. 2007 was a really uh, huge turning point because that was the year my father died. So mm. it was, it was you know, a lot of things before that, um, and I use that as the, the reference point of what what happened before that. And what happened after that? Because, you know, essentially for me, um, almost two different people, you know, um, before and after because it was such a life-changing event. Before we get on to media and podcasting and because you just um, basically raised your father passing away, I want to talk a little bit Mm -hmm. about leadership and resilience. Um, First of all, about resilience. So someone like yourself that was able to endure, I I guess – the media spotlight for so long. How do you build up resiliency for for that sort of role for those jobs? What sort of a resilient strategy do you have, or do you what What do you think resilience is? Even it's look, yeah, resilience in the media uh, has changed. That's an ever evolving thing. I think you know, perhaps with some industries and some occupations, you set your parameters for resilience, and that that will be pretty much set in stone. Whereas because of the the natural changing of the media landscape, particularly over the last 10 or so years of social media, the resilience that you've needed to acquire has changed as well. And that is basically being resilient enough to um, be able to process and deal with the shit that you get um, on social media and how you feel about that. Um, And as opposed to, you know, uh, I've, I've had resilience where, you know, I was attacked four weeks mercilessly by a gossip columnist mm. who just was just trying to get me to, to take the bait, to take the bait. They just wanted me to blow up and have a fight. And it was four weeks of sustained high attention media assault. Mm. And it really angered me. And this was a, around a period of my life after my father had died and uh, just before the birth of my son. And I just outwardly, I looked as though, uh, it was water off a duck's back. Internally, I was really very, I was getting very angry about it, but I also knew it was bait. And I thought if I take it, 
it will blow up. And I took advice from people. I said, just walk away from this one mess. And part of me, uh, I think on reflection, part of me says, no, I should have taken that fight. Yeah, I was going to ask you, do you, did you war game what, what the outcome would have been if you'd if you just stood toe to toe with with that columnist yeah. and started because you have a you yeah. have an arsenal which a lot of people don't have which is that comedy and comedy sometimes can really bite deeply into people yeah and look and that's what you got to do the best defense for somebody like me is to use comedy you're spot on brand because if i if i start using something out of it's not a not about using something out of my own arsenal. It's actually about not using the things that are in my arsenal mm. are actually my best defense. So uh, mean, that means that, you know, using the, what the public's perception of me as my arsenal is, is, is that's the intelligent move. So using humor, um, letting it look as though I'm, I'm not affected. I don't care. I don't, I don't, I'm not phased by their opinions. Um, and, outwardly appearing as though they've not got under my skin is better than, you know, tapping into what I do possess in my arsenal, which I don't like to reveal, which is um, a, a potentially volcanic reaction to things. Like I'm quite, I'm quite defensive and I can, I can harness my aggression better than I used to, mm. but I do have the ability to absolutely blow up. And mm. particularly if I'm, I'm pushed, I'm challenged, or I feel threatened mm. when I feel threatened or my family's threatened, I can go to a very, very uh, dark and aggressive default, but um, I harness that well. With the media, it, it, I don't need it. I don't need to do that. Mm. Um, I haven't found the um, necessity to draw on it that deeply, although it has been in my mind. Do you love comedy? Do I love comedy? Yeah, it's the best gig in the world. Did you do you research it the way I the way I res- used to research leadership? Do you do you or still do? Do you research comedy even now and, and understand the nuances and and like go back in time to famous comedians and then and then look at what's modern now and try and meld them together? Well, that's an interesting question because Rosso used to say this about about me. He said, "You're a student of comedy. I'm not." Hmm. So Rosso was never he was never a big consumer of comedy. He was an he still is an excellent um, builder and um, I think. A, construction um, mindset Rosso has uh, towards building ideas and building comedy, but he didn't, he didn't kind of immerse himself in comedy. Whereas I did, but not in the comedy that people would expect me to immerse myself in. I don't watch a lot of stand up comedy full stop. Um, I don't immerse myself in a lot of modern comedy because I think that you've got to be careful about wearing somebody else's clothes Mm. and taking on their affectations taking on their delivery. And I see this a lot in other comedians. I look at, uh, you know, some comedians, even some of my peers, and I just go, that just sounds like Ricky Gervais. Oh, I was going to say, uh, you, we can't have everyone being Ricky Gervais or it becomes boring, no. yeah. Mm. Yeah, so I think, you know, some of my influences, to, to answer your question, Bram, yeah, I do. I, I, I've researched some people, but not, I, I really, I've read one book um by Groucho Marx three times mm. and I have three, three copies of the book. Mm. Um, I just, the, my father had a copy and I read it when I was young and then I reread it again and thought it was even more brilliant. And it really inspired me and actually triggered a huge element of what created American Rosso mm. was off the back of a, a book that, that Groucho Marx wrote. Um, I think he probably wrote it 
later in his career, so maybe 60s or 70s, mm. but it was called The Letters, Groucho's Letters, and it was all letters, that absurd letters that he'd written to people. And I thought it was, I still think it's brilliant. So, yeah. um, and John Clark, John yeah. Clark inspired me massively, although you would never see it in my comedy. His, uh, his dialogue is to me one of the, the purest forms of comedy. My favourite form of comedy is writing or reading or absorbing really clean, snappy, smart yeah. dialogue. I, I used to love Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister, and I thought the mm. I thought you were involved in a modern take on that. Really, um, do you want to tell us about that experience with the Hollow Men? Yeah, amazing. The Hollow Men. It's it's a fantastic. Only one season, one series. Um, it was produced by Working Dog, who produced mm. the dish and produced the castle, and uh, a, a, without doubt, the, you know, the and a river somewhere. Um, sorry, and a river somewhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, they're so prolific, and yeah. they're, they're brilliant people. They're masters of the game. Um, so I was given an opportunity to, to have an acting role in uh, in the Hollow Men, which was a, a Canberra-based um, political satire. And it was really, really funny. And I, I agree, like it was, it was like Yes Minister, which I used to watch with my father, even though I didn't understand the politics of the nature of the, of the you know, the 80s and in British politics for that matter as well. Um, but I, I loved the tone and I loved the, the way uh, it was very nuanced and very, very subtle, yeah. very subtle humour. And um, so I, I did that in 2008 and it was a real shame, Bram, because... My father absolutely loved uh, Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister and he would have really mm. loved Hollow Men, but unfortunately he passed away the year before I made it and it yeah. was always like one of those things just go, it's not a regret, I can't mm. regret it, but it's just an unfortunate thing where it's go, geez, my old man would have absolutely loved that and loved me being in that. Yeah, I can imagine that would have been you know, a powerful thing for him to see that if he'd had the opportunity, he would have, you know, because... It's the same with me and the things that I do now. My, my dad doesn't see, you know, the the, uh, the things that you have, the the accolades that you get after they pass away. Um, yeah. Hey, I want to ask you about Anzac, the Anzac legend, Anzac spirit. So dark humor mm-hmm. seems to permeate its way through the Anzac legend. It's in it's in a lot of the the, the movies around the Anzacs, Glipley and the like. Um, and I've certainly seen it firsthand where soldiers have a very dark humor and i think comedians and soldiers seem to have a lot in common and i, and I sort yes. of wonder if there's more to the myth of the anzacs than maybe than maybe people actually understand there's something else to it isn't there i think we've talked about this before yeah definitely and i've spoken this you know about this topic to soldiers and a lot of special forces oper- operators whether they you know be retired or still active but there's definitely i think there's a there's a great um, respect between um, comedians and and soldiers, mm. um, armed personnel, particularly the army. And I know a lot of my friends, Tom Gleason, Limo. Uh, there is like literally a, a huge list of comedians who have gone overseas, including myself, have gone over to places like Afghanistan and Iraq to perform for troops because um, I don't know. We just we we're naturally drawn to. We we like the way soldiers operate and think, and also too, they do have a dark sense of humour, which is in some ways what comedians do when no one else is around. And yeah. I think that's part of it. Maybe that's a, that that dark, uh, you know, kind of sense of humour. Bram is the fact that 
when comedians are left to their own devices, when they're in a room and there's no audience, it, it gets pretty real. Yeah. It gets very, it gets very odd and things, and we deliberately push our, ourselves to say things that are, you know, abhorrent. They're, 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 you're pushing each other to say things you could I, never I saw say you. in the public domain. I, I saw you controlling yourself on Thank your God You're Here a few times because that was ab-lib comedy. You know, you walk through a door. If that's right, isn't it? It's the right show. You walk through a door. It's like, thank God you're here. And then you've got it. You, you're confronted with a scene and you now have to think on your feet and be, you know, agile and pivot to use all the words going around at the moment. But um, yeah. But if there was no audience there, oh my God, that'd be hilarious, I reckon. Oh, wow. If there's, if there's no audience, it wasn't that. You've always got to be respectful of your parameters. Yeah. And, you know, I believe in, in comedy, you've got to know where you are and who you're performing to. So you can't, you've got to change and adapt to the audience. Mm. You don't, can't, um, you, you should, if, you, if you're a good comedian, you should be able to adapt. Um, whether or not you're being asked to be serious or being direct or um, to to talk about things that are personal, whatever it is. But particularly with an audience, you know, whatever it is, you should, you should direct the style of comedy you do and adapt to that audience. So on something like Thank God You're Here, it is a family show mm. and you're right, you know, you, you'd be in a circumstance where you just, in any, if you're with comedians, you'd be swearing and it would go weird and it'd be completely unacceptable. Yeah. But you go, well, hang on a second. This is, you know, uh, I think it was like 7.30 on a Thursday night on Channel 7 with yeah. over a million viewers. Mm. You pull it back a bit. Mm. Yeah, not Netflix. Nah, exactly. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, to get back to the point, I think, Brandon, there is, there is a, a, I, I think soldiers like comedians because comedians help break the tension. Yeah. And, and I love, I love nothing more than breaking tension in a room. Yeah. And, using comedy and being really blunt force. But one of the things I love and is uh, particularly in, a, in a, a workplace, particularly if it's somebody else's workplace, if you're there and there's a really noticeable um, sense of um, discomfort, you know, people are uncomfortable because it's awkward. There's an awkwardness in the room, right? People know that that awkwardness is there, mm. right? Everyone knows it's there. So, You've got one of two decisions. You can be silent about it and just, you know, passively understand that everybody's feeling the same thing. Or you do what I do, which is you draw even more attention to the awkwardness yeah. and either heighten it so to the point where it is it is so obvious. You make you make light of it. I, I walk in and go, this is the most awkward situation I've ever been. You guys are making me feel uncomfortable in your workplace. So if you could all please leave because <laughs> I am a guest here and you're making me uncomfortable. And everyone laughs yeah. and you've broken the tension. Yeah. Yeah, we I remember I remember in Afghanistan we had a helicopter come in to pick us up one day and it absolutely came screaming down the valley and you could feel everyone excited that we we're gonna go home and have hot showers and meals and the like. And this helicopter came in and the pilot and if you'd had you know, if you'd had some music playing on loudspeakers out the side of it, it wouldn't have been, un, you know, wouldn't have been out of place. And then this helicopter just absolutely, yeah. Then this, well, something a little bit more, you know, American Sun or something like that. And then this, and then this helicopter absolutely slammed into the deck and snapped its landing gear, and a couple of couple of bits and pieces went flying over our shoulders, and a rotor went flying off. And there was just silence when the grinding of the gears and everything stopped, and this thing was laying on its side. And my guy, you know turns to me and he goes, 
I guess we're fucking walking, <laughs> you know. And, and we, <laughs> yeah, no one ran, no one ran over to help him. We just all looked at each other, shaking our heads, and he's gone. I guess we're fucking walking. Um, yeah, yeah, anyway, that anyway, anyway. Uh, needless to say, we didn't we didn't walk. We secured the site, and another helicopter came. And yeah, anyway, yeah. it was a long it was a longer day than it needed to be, you know. Hmm. Yeah, but the other thing too is, you know, that's a that's a tense environment anyway. Like that that yeah. that's exactly the same brand. Yeah. The environment is intrinsically tense, right? Then you've had something that has compounded that. So mm. the tension's building. If you can break it, it just it brings everything, resets the levels a little bit. Yeah. I think that's you know, something that soldiers may appreciate from comedians is that we can we can go there and you know the other thing too, comedians are the antithesis of authority. That's you know like you've got a structural element like the military, which is very serious. You know you notice like in places when I was in uh, Baghdad last year in Taji, like it's pretty hectic. You know it's it, there's a real sense of danger there. Taji was attacked earlier this year. It's still pretty, pretty, you know, fiery. But so everyone's on high alert. Yeah. And you get a sense of that. But we're not. We're idiot civilians. We we just, you know, we. It's just like letting an idiot child loose in a shop full of China. Mm. It's just, um, you know, we can we can say things and do things that they just cannot do. And I think that mm. you know the the observation of watching us do what they can't do probably, you know, is amusing to soldiers. And we, we know and we thrive in it. We're just mm. like, we can say shit about your commanders that if you say that, you're on a plane back home. And you can salute, you can salute left-handed as well. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> or with your fist or something. Um, exactly. This is the greatest and ever best podcast that's ever been produced tribute. Um You've done a few podcasts, and and you've and you are, well, you are known as someone who who gets stuff done around podcasts. You fix people's podcasts. You 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 offer unsolicited at times advice, um, mm. which is amazing. You've rung me and helped me out. What? Let's talk about podcasting. Um, is first of all, is the podcast the lower back tattoo of two thousand and twenty? Does everyone need to no. have one? No, no. Uh, I think there's more people doing podcasts than there needs to be. There's over a million people who have um, created podcasts. Wow. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Um, it's a lot of work. And Yeah, well, here's the thing. Is it? That's the thing, Brad. Is it a lot of work? Mm. No. The majority of those, and I think it's only like, uh, you'd have to check, but I think it's like 30% of them have lasted any more than four weeks. Wow. You know, it, yeah, it's something ridiculous like that. There's only a very small percentage, and it's 30% of achieved, you know, weekly delivery or something like that. So out of the out of the million, by far and away, like you know, hundreds of thousands of those have just skimmed the surface like a stone and and glanced off it. Right. Um, and there's been no penetration. Then you got people like you know Joe Rogan who have just absolutely owned the format, and they've done that from hard work. Yeah. So it's about podcasting is not uh, the the poor man's radio. It's a different form. Yeah. And I've I've got respect for. It, but what's interestingly, you know, interesting is that I uh, um, help and guide people who make podcasts. I guest on a lot of podcasts. Um, I've hosted one um, as a commercial uh, agreement with a um, uh, with a publisher, but I've never ever taken upon my own podcast. Not mm. as yet. 
watch this space. Are you going to release something now? Are you going to tell us some big news, Merrick? Well, what's interesting, I've got, all, I've, got, I've got the experience, I've got the understandings of it, and a lot of people, you know, like Osher Ginsburg, I'll talk to him regularly, I spoke to him yesterday, but he'll always say to me, when are you doing a podcast? Yeah. When are you doing a podcast? He's a very, very good podcast. Yeah, he is, yeah. He's got a great mind for it. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, is that I, I, there's a couple of things for me with podcasting. As a professional broadcaster, mm. um, I want to do podcasts that are a very high standard because yeah. otherwise I'm letting myself down immediately. Number two is that, you know, quite frankly, I want to get paid. That's my job. That's mm. what I do. That's mm. what I, I'm, I'm a skilled professional at. So it's for me to not being, to, for me to give that away diminishes all the great and hard work that I've done in the past as a broadcaster. Yeah. So it's got to be monetized. And I also too, I don't want to be greedy about that. So that the monetization would need to be figured out. Um, and thirdly is that I have to have an idea that I'm truly wedded to something that is different to what I've done in radio. Yeah. I don't want to go and do a poorer version of what I did for 20 years with massive budgets and extreme help from producers. Yeah, I like don't want tri- to do that. Triple M, you know, your your evening drive show home, like the like I was on that a couple of times as a guest. And yeah, the the staff, the money, the slickness of it, the speed, yep. the product, the after production, the the music. I mean, it was that's not podcasting. No, nah, it's it is beyond it. I mean, your facility there to make good programming is is just enormous, and uh, and that's the thing is, you know, I, I've got I've got a great equipment. I've got a, a road um, roadcaster, uh, mm. you know, with mics and, and a plug in and go. It's an incredible piece of kit, mm. um, and I use it to record stuff for my own purposes. But uh, and it's excellent. It is studio quality equipment, mm. but. Um, I'm not ready to do, I've got lots of ideas for podcasts and I've even shared some of those ideas for ideas for podcasts in the past. And then I've seen them turn up very recently. I've seen a couple of ideas uh, that I had have turned up in other people's um, work, which I found interesting. Also too, don't share an idea if you don't, you know, if you're afraid to lose it. Um, But uh, I have got something. There's a couple of things that I really, really want to do, but I actually need to wait. I need to be patient and I need a few things to transpire before it's right for me to do those podcasts. And I'll do them in a season. It will be a block and then I'll, I'll um, have a break and then I'll do it again. If someone wanted to set up a podcast, what would be your initial guidance if they came to you and said, hey, Mez, I want to, I've got this great idea for a podcast. Here's the idea. I'm really passionate about it. I'm going to put in the work. How do I do a podcast? Mm-hmm. Piece of advice I give to everyone about show business, and it applies to podcasting as well. But just with anything, when young people say to me, oh, "I'm going to make it," I want to, I want to do a TV show, I want to do a podcast, I want to do, uh, you know, a sketch show, a YouTube channel, or whatever. I always say to them, "Don't tell me, show me, make it." Don't tell me about it. I don't care about it until I've seen it and I can hear it and I can watch it or I can be a part of it. I don't care. Otherwise, it's just an idea. I've got millions of ideas. It doesn't matter. It's not It's not, It's not. not anything until you made it. So the answer is go and make it. Mm. Go and make it. Have a look at it and, and then see what you think about it yourself. And make sure that your idea is different because this is the, there's a reason why there's a million podcasts and, you know, maybe 30% of them are still operating is because people – are not doing enough research into what's around. 
people are not giving their uh, a unique proposition. And so therefore it doesn't have the longevity. So I would say, have a look at what you've got to offer and, and ask yourself really honestly, is this different enough? Is this going to fit in the mix of one million individuals? Yeah. Um, you think it's, if you think it's going to mix in there, then do it. But go and do it. Don't tell anybody about it. Just go and do it. Yeah. And then, you know, with regards to the actual way that it's done, there's a lot of research that needs to go on behind the scenes before you can have a guest on the show about the person, about the topic. How would you go yeah. about – how do you go about coming up with that research and having a running sheet? Do you use a, a, a type of a mind oh, map yeah. or yeah. – Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I spent – preparation, I mean, you know this. Um, it's the four Ps, mate. It, it, preparation allows you, particularly in comedy too, the, the – better prepared you are and the better structured you are, the better the chaos can reign. You know, chaos works within the confines of, of structure and balance. Mm. So if you want to, if you want to make something, you've got to, you've got to have those, apply those disciplines. I, I find podcasts particularly that go start open-ended and then they just go, let's just run this for an hour and 35 minutes and see how it goes. I'll tell you how it goes. Boring is yeah. how it goes. Yeah. Um, You've got to have structural elements. I think with a podcast, you need to have in your mind and on paper yeah. a beginning, a middle, and an end. They are absolutely imperative. And that, that middle might be just one question that you want to ask or one thing that you want to get to. And then I pillar out from that. So I would have the bookends of start and the end. I know how I'm going to do that. And I'll write this down in a piece of paper. I do this with all work that I do. Mm. Then in between that, then I'll put what's my middle. I'll put that, that flagpole right in the centre of it and go, that's, the, that's going to be the pivot point. From there, it'll be before and after that point. Then from that, I'll put the posts underneath it like that, building out. So I'll put it before, before the, the middle of it. I'll have, you know, two or three markers that I, I want to get to or, or would ideally like to get to and three after it. And then if I get to them, Great. If I don't, it's because something better has come along. Mm. But I've got them there. I've got those structural elements in place. And do you have some sort of a hard-hitting question right up front to grip everyone when they're listening to it? Or do you sort of hide that somewhere inside the podcast and then you'll pull that out and that will become that will become a snippet for some of your product? That's a good question because I reckon you can do it both ways. I think I've said to you before, Bram, that you know you should always start something with the action point. You know, if you if you watch a Hollywood film, uh, they're formulaic and they work for a reason. Um, and it is they start with a big opening action scene because that draws you in. Bang! Your eyes are sucked in, your ears are sucked in. You are in that space, and you've got a real sense of what the rest of the journey will be about because it's done there in that opening scene. Um, so I think that's really, really good to, to begin with. I think you should, you should give something, you know, pretty powerful at the start um, or, or something, yeah, with a, with a bit of strength to it at the start. It doesn't have to be your strongest card, but you should have something pretty good so there. If I, was, There's no saying- if I was interviewing General Stanley McChrystal and we'd just gotten through the niceties and then I, and then I went something like, what was it like standing in front of Barack Obama knowing that your career had ended? Would that be like that would be a hard hitting first question? I'm not sure I'd have yeah. much of a, a podcast after it, but I mean that's the question I want well, to ask it. him when he comes on the podcast. 
Well, that's it because and, and it's about it's about trying to preempt mm. some of those responses as well. And unfortunately, that's fraught with danger in itself because you don't know. Yeah. But um, you know, you might ask him that, and that could be the end of the interview. You've put him off kilter, and he's just going bang. And that's something that I learned from radios. If you go too direct too early, they'll shut you down. Whereas if you give them a sense that you have done your research, that you have um, shown them the respect. And then you bring that up later on, they might give you yeah. something there. Uh, an example that I can give is Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins is a very, very, notoriously can be a very difficult interview. Um, and sometimes people get three minutes with him and then he just goes, I'm out and walks out. I interviewed him about five, six years ago. Big fan of his music. He's a big guy. Uh, he's, you know, got a real presence to him. And obviously he's got the work behind him. I've done all my research. I knew what questions I wanted to ask him from the start and then the ones I wanted to ask him later on. But the first few questions, what I wanted to do was show, they, I didn't think they were the best questions for the audience even, but mm. they were the best questions to get him in the right space and yeah. let him know that I'd done the research, that I cared about what he constructed in his career and that I had respect for him as a person. Wow. I did that and then bang, 45 minutes later, wow. his manager's trying to wind us up because he'd gone for so long and he literally just put his hands at the glass and push them away. Yeah. Um, and one of the better interviews I've ever done because I, I balanced it out. But I did ask him difficult questions, yeah. but probably after a good 30 minutes or something like that before I went, okay, I reckon we've got a, a good respect here. Yeah. We know what's going on. Now it's time to ask that yeah. question. You know, it's, it's about timing. Tell me you went drinking in the cross with him after that. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, I'm I'm no, I'm banned from the cross. One of the <laughs> one of the one of the questions I asked Dan McPherson on the podcast a couple of weeks ago was um, and I waited till about the forty minute marks. Like, so what was it like living with Robbie Williams back in the day? And he, I just watched him on Zoom, just like shake his head at me, like you bastard. Like he goes, "No, nah, it was really good, mate. We drank lots of tea, and you know, just 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 the greatest, just just the greatest musician of the modern you know '90s from the, one of the biggest boy bands. And I lived with him, and we drank lots of cups of tea and talked about philosophy. Um, yeah. yeah, very brilliant. It's about it's just about timing, Bram. It's like anything, you know. You've got to you got to pick your marks, and, it, and if you yeah. If you go them too early, sometimes it's good to if if they are expecting you to, to bring something up, you either say to them and, and that you know that they're going to be uncomfortable with it, mm. then you say to them, "I'm going to bring this up at the top straight away so we can address it and move move on to other stuff." Yeah. And I go, "Okay, great. You've given them the game plan. That'll actually work in your favour." Yeah, and I I felt that there was a real care for me, for instance, when I went on. Triple M with you, like it was obvious that you were like, hey, I know you've got a message. You want to talk about your book, and I'm going to help you yep. get there. And that's certainly, I mean, that was the first radio interview I'd ever done. And um, oh, it was pretty obvious too, Bram. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> you, you did a, you did, a, <laughs> you did ask me what special equipment we were carrying in our packs, and I was trying to think about, it and you were like, you know, like dildos and stuff like that. I was like, what? <laughs> um, yeah, and I, and I, and I. You know, I was on a few radio interviews thereafter, you know, and, and they were like ABC ones, and I was just waiting. You know, I was like a cowering dog that had been beaten by the Triple M yeah. crew. Um, no, but you, you, you showed that there was this the care for the actual um, talent, let's call it, and, uh, and you'd, you'd yep. done your research, and, and it was almost like, hey, I really value your time here, and so let's do this. But which makes me wonder... Um, because I've had media training in in the army, 
And and I watch a lot of the politicians doing the same thing with the media training. It's well, let me just say this, you know, or they yeah. draw out the they draw out the questions or their answers to stay on a particular theme and a topic that just goes on and on and on. It doesn't make for good podcasting for starters. But I wonder no. if you get as frustrated as I do when you don't get to see any authenticity or any genuine thought from politicians, for instance, when they're doing media interviews. It's like, hey, just lead. Talk to us, lead. Yeah. You know, I wonder if you get as aggravated about that as a, as a professional who, who has done interviews you know, for 20 years. Yep. And look, I've interviewed lots of politicians and they either do, you know, they, they can, uh, you know, just play straight bat and just bat them away all day and it just becomes like test cricket. You know, yeah. you just, you just, you're waiting for, for a big hit, but it's not going to happen. Mm. Um, and that's, that's a tactical response by them. But the really good politicians, the really smart ones, actually engage you to the point where you f- either forget or you, no longer care for the line of questioning that you thought you might have put preference to. Mm. Um. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And what they do is they don't they don't block you. What they do is they draw you in and answer your question, but in a way that they want to answer it. And I think out of all the politicians that I've interviewed, and I've interviewed a few prime ministers, um, John Howard after he was retired, when I interviewed him and I was talking to him about Port Arthur mm. and his, his insights into Port Arthur, uh, not just, you know, the banning of the guns, but actually about what it meant to the country was very, very good. He was very skilled mm. and very, very honest and it made for a great interview. Yeah. But I've got what I wanted, yeah. you know. I've got the sound bites that I wanted from a former prime minister who had done the right thing, yeah. who had made a right decision. And rather than him stepping back and saying, yeah, I'm going to gloat on this, yeah, I was right, you know, um, you know, history favours me, uh, he knew it was his legacy. Mm. He, his legacy was there. Mm. You know, people forget about the GST when you're talking about stuff like this. And he knew it was there, but he didn't take the opportunity to, to gloat about it. He was just... It was more like we made a good decision. Mm. You know, universally as a country, we made a good decision to have a gun buyback and to, you know, eliminate the amount of firearms in this country. Mm. Um, and I thought that was, it was really hard not to respect him as a man, as a politician when he did that. And he said it without staying on, on topic, for instance, like as in we've got this theme yeah. we've got to get across. So he was, it was more genuine interview. Yeah, and maybe that's because it was post his, his leadership. Mm. Um, but, you know, even so, like, and then sometimes you have politicians who just try to share too much and they just get it all wrong and you go, oh, dear, just <laughs> just don't. You know, yeah. we want you to be a leader. Lead. You're, yeah. you're an elected leader. Lead. Yeah. You know, lead the conversation. Lead the direction. Don't be so um, uh, protective of your own uh, insecurities. The conversations, and, and you sort of, taught me this through osmosis, I guess. 
you know talking about how how people open up when they're when they don't think they're being recorded um mm-hmm. and i always leave like i always like it was recording before you came on and it'll be recording after you go as you know but those those easier conversations that happen that people think are outside the recording parts are they able to be used or not or do, do you have to say to people hey i'm how does that, or is that a moral uh, ethics thing for a podcaster? It is. It is. And if, if look, I think with um, podcasting, it's, uh, I think the onus is on the person who has been invited to the podcast to understand that everything, they should assume that every word from the moment they connect is recorded. Right. Yep. But unfortunately, not a lot of people would understand that. And so, they do have, uh, and I've seen this with politicians. And you know, I've, I've in radio, I've had requests from um, politicians' handlers, like chief of staff, to, yeah. to delete prior conversation, yeah. to um, to not talk about something. And respectfully, I've done it mm-hmm. when I've been asked. I've mm-hmm. done it. I've, mm-hmm. I've dumped stuff. I've deleted stuff from history mm-hmm. um, because. Uh, they didn't know and it felt like entrapment. Now, other people in radio would definitely use that as that would that would be their first thing. that, that well, They wouldn't worry about the rest of the interview. Yeah. It would be, look what this person said off. And I think it's capture. And I think that, you, you know, sure, you will get great um, feedback from your audience. You'll get, you'll get the press for it. But it is also too morally bankrupt, I think. And you'll get a reputation. Yeah, and you'll get a reputation, you'll get mm. fame, you'll get money, you'll get all those things. But, you know, at the end of the day, are you doing the right thing or the wrong thing? You make the choice. One of the things I did at the start of the podcast is I said, okay, we'll, we'll cover that later on in the show. Um, and that's a little trick that, that you taught me to, to spike people's interest to stay the course of the podcast. Um, yep. And there's some psychology around around how this is done, isn't there? Not just that, but there's some psychology the whole way through podcasts. Do you want to share some of that with us? Uh, look, there's, there's techniques that you can use to keep people engaged. Um, hooking and teasing is, is what we call it in radio. Well, let's talk about that you... a bit later. But um, to... No, just joking. <laughs> See what you did there? Uh, hooking and teasing is just is basically, you know, uh, finding the elements that you know are going to be the most intriguing to the audience. Um, or, or elements that might um, offer some sort of um, uh, revelation is a good one, mm. um, and then you tease them with that. So you hook it. Say coming up as a hook. Say coming up, I'm going to ask the prime minister what his greatest achievement was. And you go, wow, I wonder what that was. That's a that's a hook, right? Mm. Um, and you tease it, and you say, uh, you'll say, you know, um, in this interview, I asked. The, the Prime Minister, uh, did he do the right thing uh, with this event? Mm. You're going to find out later on. And directly speaking to your audience, you're going to find out oh, right. in 30 minutes. So make it personal yeah. to that listener. Always. Always, always gonna, talk to okay. people. Always talk to you, You're either talking, and this is a mistake I, I think a lot of podcasters make that maybe is not as prevalent in radio. It shouldn't be in radio. Like if you're doing this in radio, you will not achieve as much as you should or could. Mm. Um, and in podcasting, it's like 
I'm in isolation. I'm just talking to this one other person. I'm only speaking to Bram and that's it. No, that's not the way I think about it. I think about the people mm. who are listening to this podcast yeah. now. And as far as I'm concerned, I, I see them in my mind. I literally picture individuals and I wonder how they would think or respond to the things that I'm saying. Yeah. And so as a result, you naturally change. You won't even know. It's subconscious. You will change your language and your direction so you're not talking at, which is to the exclusive. Yeah. You're speaking with which is inclusive. Right. So I'm trying to open up the conversation with you so that my listener sitting next to me learns something. And that, that, that listener sitting next to me is 200,000 people out there when they download it. Yep. Yeah, right. And because people, these people are your friends. They are, like this, mm. I will say this, there's no such thing as a bad listener. Yeah. Because yeah. If, if they're bothered to make an effort to listen to what you say, even yeah. if they don't like you, you're still going to value them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they've made an effort. So treat them like they are part of your gang, like yeah. they are part of your group, part of your team. That reminds me of a of a story actually in Afghanistan where, um, you know, we were going down a valley and the Americans brought in a fast jet and a B-1 bomber to, to, as a show of force to the Taliban and this fast jet came flying down the valley and like breaking the sound barrier and everyone looked up, including the enemy, like, oh, wow, it's amazing, you know. And then one of the Australian Ford Air Controllers goes, hang on a sec, and he called over the Scan Eagle, which is like a lawnmower, um, you know, drone, which is about the mm. 20, 20 feet long. And then that came down the valley going, <laughs> as a show of force, and everyone, including the Taliban, started pissing themselves laughing. Um, oh, that's good. I'm glad that you're over there entertaining the Taliban because I think that's <laughs> how we're going to win hearts and minds that's is right. by entertaining them with drones. Well, well, actually, what I wanted to show is just a random story that I had, which actually is loosely linked to what you were saying, but not really, as a technique. Can you explain what I just did there for the listeners? Well, what you did is you you related, uh, you, you took a tether from what we were doing as a conversation and you've made a relatable um, story and brought it into, into the context of what we're talking about. Did you do that successfully? I don't know. That's <laughs> um, I haven't said that. Having said that, you had me when you said I was in Afghanistan and we caught in some fast movers. I was like, something's going to get blown up. I'm in. I'm all in. I want to hear this story, right? So that's actually not a bad thing. That's a good technique is what you've done is you've gone, I can can show that I'm relating to what Merrick is saying. So therefore my audience uh, will understand that I'm engaged with what he's saying because I'm reacting to something he's done. But I'm also too offering something of myself, I'm sharing something personal and I'm sharing something that they haven't seen, a revelation, which is I was in a valley, fast movers came in and also to the revelation is there that you've got, you know, um, an Australian guy as a joke is calling in an extremely expensive piece of military equipment just because it'd be funny. (laughs) Yes, that is very funny. That was at 30 feet in the air and we're all going, this is hilarious. That's hilarious. I would love to have been there. Yeah, it was pretty funny. Um, so some other tips and tricks, Merrick, for podcasting. We're, we're in the guts of the podcast now. We're making our way through it. I might have a mind map up on this screen here of all the things I want to hit. I may have taken some notes on the right here of, oh, he said this. That'll be interesting to go back to in a moment. Um, what, mm-hmm. are some, what are some other tricks to keep it moving along, to keep people engaged at home, the listener? Can you tell uh, them about that? Yeah, I think – I think content wins and, you know, getting getting insights or giving them, telling an audience something that they didn't know mm. is that's it. That's that's the gold. 
Mm. Uh, revealing something that they did not know prior to the, the conversation is delivering on, on what you're doing. So uh, if you can find those elements in a podcast and deliver those, those elements to your audience, then you're ticking that box for well, here's, them. So here's something that um, here's something that the listeners don't know. I walked into a um, I walked into the Qantas Club in Melbourne a few years ago, and uh, oh, a long time ago now, over ten what years ago. What year was that, Graham? Oh God, I can't even remember what year was. It must have been two thousand. Oh gosh, seven. I reckon two thousand eleven, two thousand and twelve. Was it? Was it that late? Two thousand eleven, maybe. Um, yeah. And uh, and there's Merrick sitting over there reading something, having a, having an orange juice or whatever it was that you were drinking at the time. And I just walked over and sat in a seat opposite you and going, hey, Merrick, how you going, man? And you're like, yep, who the fuck is this? <laughs> well, you were dressed as a civilian too. It's not like you were in uniform. And I was no. like, okay, we've got a live one here, but he doesn't completely unhinged. I'll I'll yeah. give him my time, yeah. and I said hello. Yeah, yeah. and and uh, because and because you'd been involved in our in our unit previously, hadn't you? You were doing some research for um for something that you were doing, and you, you went and did a, a radio. I guess it was almost yeah. like a modern podcast, if you think about it. Back then, um, it was actually yeah. very very much so. It was in two thousand and ten. It was in November two thousand and ten. I was invited to Holsworthy mm. uh, to go and uh, go on a, you know an experience, as it were, with the commandos of Tucom, mm. and it was. Just mind blowing, yeah, absolutely mind blowing. Mm. And um, were you there on that day, Brent? When you came to the unit, I wasn't. No, yeah. it was my. It nah. was one of the other. You were overseas. Say again. Were you overseas? Were you in Afghanistan? That yeah, year? I was in Afghanistan, two thousand ten. Yeah, you, you. Um, I think it was a little bit. I think it might. No, actually, what because it was H that you were with. And uh, yeah. H was our company sergeant major, so it must have been at the start of the year. Um, yeah, I was in oh, Canada. It was in November. I remember it was it was middle November. Oh, I was November. Okay, so yeah. I was on grade two for major uh, up at Canung- yeah. up at Canungra at the time. Right. Yeah, but you went off so, up into the Blue Mountains with with uh, H, and uh, oh, got, got owned basically. <laughs> He's anybody who knows who we're talking about. H is a very special unit, um, and a great and a great bloke who yeah. you know you, you simultaneously love and are also very fearful of at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was on that experience, it, I was been I've been reading uh, your new manuscript, Graham, which is excellent, by the way. Thank I you. genuinely mean that. I think this Thanks, book man. that you've written is by far and away what you needed to write. I think yeah. it's really, really good. Thanks, man. Really I appreciate good. that. Thank you. Um, but there's a few mentions there of Paul Kale mm. and uh, uh, JJ is, is his name. And mm. when, I don't know if you know this, but when I went down to Tucom mm. uh, in that November of 2010, which was my first experience really with special forces, I'd met special forces guys before, and I'd um, I'd done some stuff with uh, the resources trusts and the families mm. of special forces. Oh, but, the commando welfare um, trusts. Never- yeah. mm. But I'd never, I'd never actually kind of been to Holsworthy or done anything there. Anyway, um, after a day, you know, like blowing shit up and using sniper rifles mm. and, you know, it was just, it was unreal. Mm. And at the end of the day, my radio producer and I were standing in the, in the, the mess having a, a cold beer and um, I don't know how the conversation swung around to it, but uh, before I knew it, uh, Paul Kale was illustrating using me um, as a dummy 
how to choke somebody out. Oh, and uh, I, <laughs> I was standing there and all of a, I was going, okay, this would be interesting. And he goes, I think he said something, he goes, oh, I hear you've done a bit of martial arts or something like that. And as soon as he said that, I went, oh, no, this is not going to end well. <laughs> and then no. I think I, can't re- I can barely even remember how he did it. I think he did like it was a reverse – it was a cross my throat, but it was a reverse grab, and it was quick. And all of a sudden, I just went whoop yeah, and fell, fell to the ground. And then, and then I was retrieved. You know, instantly he obviously had the ability, and I had the trust in him that to you know know that he would do the right thing. Mm. But he choked me out, and then allowed me to regain consciousness. And my producer said to me, he "Goes, it was the best thing I'd ever seen." Ha! <laughs> awesome. I said, Why? because I was quiet and I'd been choked out. He goes, mate, he goes, you just went down like a puppet. Yes, he's amazing, isn't he? <laughs> you know, um, in all the combat that I was involved in with, with JJ over the year, you know, in 2010 and then training leading up to it and stuff, I still remember of all the things he'd ever said to me, the one thing that resonates in my mind the most was the following, but wait, I'll tell the story. We'd been doing training every other night that we were in the barracks in Tarrancourt doing unarmed combat, and the guys were getting really quite good at it. You know, I mean, you've got Paul Kale there teaching the platoon. The guys were getting really good at it. And then we decided we'd have a, a, a wrestling competition, you know, a, a, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu competition with the American yeah. Special Forces with the ODA team that was their operational deployment alpha. So they rock up, and, and my offsider from them is a, is a captain – uh, I can't mention his name on here because he's quite a big deal now in the States. But he's only a little guy. He only comes up to my shoulder. Um, and so, so he's like five foot. I'm 6'4". It's radio, man. <laughs> I can be as tall as I want. Um, so he would be five. He'd be five. Let's say 5'10". And um, and we're, we're facing off each other. And I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be hilarious, me and this USSF captain, and I'm going to just choke the shit out of this dude. And then just before we get on the mat, JJ, I said to JJ, has this guy done any martial arts? And JJ goes, nah. He goes, but you're about to get destroyed. And I went, why? And just as I leapt on, like put one foot on the mat, I thought he was joking. He goes, he was the US National College Wrestling Champion. He fucking owned me, Merrick. Like, no, and not like they do in jiu-jitsu where there's all, all the angles and everything that are coming at you. you know, this, guy hurt, this guy hurt me with his forehead. Like he, he put me down and then he put so much pressure on me. Like I, I was trying to find ways to get submitted. He'd have it. Here's my arm. Take it. Like he was brutal. And did you tap out? I mean, oh, know, I can't remember the. I can't remember the next thirty seconds of my life. Like he was throwing look, me around like a rag doll, and he was tiny. But the thing is, when this is the other thing that maybe the listeners don't understand. I've learned it through my career. Australia is a very small pond, and our best of our best. You know, there's a there's only a very small handful of the best of our best, if that makes sense. Yeah. When you go to America. And you start dealing with the U.S. Special Forces, with Delta Force, with CAG, this, that, and the other, the SEALs. When you get to their top-end echelons, they're as, they're as good as us. They're as good as our best. But there is, yeah. but there is thousands of them. <laughs> there is thousands of our best, where we might have 20 or 30 people at any one time who are at the pinnacle of SF. These, these guys, yeah. there's, I walked into a room once and looked around, and I was like, oh, I can't work out who the stupidest guy in this room is. Oh, you know, like oh, I just worked it out. It's it's, it's yeah, it's it's, it's not everyone else. <laughs> it's you know, so so their population, their their population density, 
the, the yeah. numbers allow them to ha- – so when you're facing the U.S. National College Wrestling Champion, that was the best guy at one stage in the United States at wrestling. Like I yeah. was – I've never been – Yeah, and I've never been the best at anything ever, ever, of anything, even breathing probably, like a new face in this guy. Um, yeah, so that was a pretty uh, – and, and my platoon, God bless them, uh, afterwards they all looked at me and they were all like, oh, you know – but uh, to be to be fair, they, they were good. They were fair. You know, they were good about it. I didn't lose any respect with the guys because I went in. But some you of them, some of the, some of them wrestled with him afterwards for the experience, and they were like, "Yeah, that yeah. guy is legit." You know what I mean? Completely different than jujitsu too. So it's a it's a far more. I can't even describe it. It's just different. Angles are different. The yeah. the, the places where you're getting hurt are different. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Mind you, uh, mind you, JJ you JJ owned just- him. <laughs> Yeah, JJ would just be he'd be all over him like a coat. Yeah. Um, if I was there, Brand, do you reckon I would have a go? What do you do you tell me what you think I would do? If if I'd just seen you battle with that bloke and as a civilian and as somebody who doesn't have uh, you know, the extensive fighting experience, do you reckon I would if I was offered that wrestle, would I say yes or no? Hundred percent you'd say yes. I know you too well. Because it's it's the experience of it. I mean, you're not you're in a controlled and it's like my son, you know, bless him, gorgeous kid, ten years old, looks at a you know, I say to him, Do you really want to go on that on that, you know, on that show ride? Yeah, Dad. Uh-huh. It's it's of it's gotta be safe. Like there must be regulations and things for it. And you, you know, all I'm thinking of, you poor, you just have no idea that there's people out there no, who will not. take who will take advantage of that. You know, that, that, that yeah. is not safe. Um, okay, let's do nah. it. Okay, let's do it. Because <laughs> you want it, because my 10-year-old's like, let's do it. I'm like, yeah, let's do it. But really I'm like, oh, my God, the risk. And he's like, there's no risk. You know? Nah. You're nah. that 10-year-old like- kid. There's no risk here. <laughs> but if you don't, my thing is, and I think this is, you know, my mentality as a comedian and as a storyteller is that if you don't experience things, yeah. then you've got no stories. And often your best stories for comedy, your best yeah. stories are in your failures, not in your successes, Correct. right? You know, and so if you don't expose yourself to that risk, if you don't expose yourself to that potential harm, then you've got nothing. So you, that's my thing is you should – continually look for those things because that's what creates the content. It's what creates a story. And there's something I, I often think about is, you know, because, and you no doubt with the military brand, and I'm sure you can give us an example because I'm putting you on the spot too, but the, the, the fine line between bravery and stupidity, and I reckon the difference between stupid and brave is the measure of success. Mm. If you succeed, you're brave. Mm. If you fail... You're stupid. Yeah. Oh, look, for, so, for me... I'm, I'm, so having said that, I'm obviously very stupid. Yeah. Well, no, because you understand the risks. That's the thing. That makes yeah. a person brave. It's like when in the early days in the commandos, we used to do a lot of work around uh, Cockatoo Island in, in Sydney Harbour. And at night, mm. what we would quite often do, and I was in the, the swimmer scout team, we would we would swim ladders in to, to establish ladders ladders for a follow-on force and i mean you you know you know the risks people think you can just go swimming around sydney harbour and uh you know it's no that the place is non-permissive there's bull sharks in there that and so you're in there at night during a storm you've got ferries cruising up and down still because it might be 10 or 11 at night you've got ferries going through there to manly you've got 
boats, you've got party boats with strippers and shit going on. You'd much rather be up there, not you know, if well, as long as they weren't all male strippers. They, I guess. they present their own hazard: STDs, <laughs> STIs, herpes. Yeah, um, but you know, and then you're swimming, you're swimming in, and and that takes a certain level of bravery because you understand the risks. It's, it's the same as parachute jumping, doing a, a night parachute jump into the Spencer Gulf to put boats together in the water. There's an inherent risk there. Now, people will say, oh, there's not a shark under every drop of ocean. I don't know. I've been on the back ramp of a C-130 as it's going down over Jarvis Bay watching an oil slick coming out the back of a fishing trawler and seeing the hammerheads behind it. There's a lot of sharks out there. you know. So, yeah, for any guys who are currently on their parachute course, suck shit. Um, <laughs> I don't yeah, have dude, to, I don't have to do it anymore. I'll tell you where there's not a lot of hammerhead sharks. In the area that I live in, because yeah. uh, I'm on land and they don't come here, so I don't have <laughs> Well, that's right. Yeah. If I was if I was down there open ocean, a hundred percent, I'd be afraid of sharks. But I've, you know, to that, I think you should always face your fears. You know, getting back to yeah, that, agreed, I mate. suppose an example of my own thing is years ago because I've, I've never liked sharks, Bram. Mm. There's something that really I've always had a problem with sharks and being taken yeah. uh, by the back of my legs ever since I was a kid. Jaws and yeah, yeah, that's what it is. Probably everyone our age. Probably. Yeah. You know, mm. used to go as a kid, just to swim at Portsea Back Beach where Harold Holt went missing. Mm. Probably shark. Mm. Who knows? Mm. Um, or a Chinese submarine, but anyway. 100% was a Chinese submarine, <laughs> full of coronavirus. Um, <laughs> but uh, about eight years ago, I went to uh, Port Lincoln, which you know that you're familiar with. And I <laughs> went out on a little boat, went out to the Neptune Islands, and uh, went to go and swim the sharks, right? And I, I was just like, this is a long boat ride. I know that people get sick on this boat ride too, but I'm, I wasn't worried about that. But I got out there and I was like, I really, really don't like sharks a mm. lot. And as soon as we arrived and they opened up the cage for the first person to jump in, I said, I'm going first. And they said, but I'll, everyone said, oh, but you don't like sharks. And I said, yeah, that's why I should go first. Because if, if, I, if I don't, what I'm doing is just prolonging the inevitable. All right, and I'm only going to build it up to be worse in my mind with every second. If I get in, then at least I, I know what it is. I got in, saw a massive shark. <laughs> it was five minutes long. And I just went, they really are the size of a car. Yeah. And then total calm, mm. absolute total calm. My heart rate dropped right down. I was completely fine yeah. because Faced your fears. I, was, I was in and around my fear. My fear was there. I could see my fear and it was... You know, this shark was swimming around me in circling. and I went, if I, the cage wasn't here, I'd be gone, 100%. Yeah. But the thing is, I went there, I went back, and I, I think I dived three or four times more than anybody else on wow. the boat because the first time I'd done it, I, do I want to get back in the water with sharks? No, I hate them. But, you know, it's that thing that you just go, well, you're better off, I always believe you're better off if you're confronted with a fear, like jumping out of a plane. You know, I was reading that, you know, in your book, Brown, about being, scared about you know jumping out of uh, that back end of a plane it's mm. course it's natural mm. but you're better off just doing it mm. than sitting there and waiting for it and thinking on it because i reckon that's the most painful part of it mm. the scaredest i was ever or the scaredest i've ever been in the army was actually on my lead rock climbing course because i'm terrified of heights that's why i hated jumping out of planes and so when they said we need some volunteers to to do lead climbing i was like yeah i'm your man <laughs> Jesus Christ. 100%. But um, you know, you get up, my, my you get up fifty feet. My greatest fear, Bram, my greatest fear, and the thing that I'll eventually conquer is that I will jump into a body of water with Paul Kale. And yeah, that's that's like all of my fears in one. 
jumping into a body of water with Paul Kale on the side of a cliff. Yeah. <laughs> jumping out of a Hercules into the ocean and then you see there's no sharks but waiting below you is Paul Kale waiting to choke you out. Wow. That's terrifying. Forgiving him to so post-production of a podcast, how important is it to go through and edit out all the ums and ahs to put some mute backing music in there? Maybe some sort of, um, trying to find it, sound effects, those sort of things. Yep. Is that important? Good question. Yeah, that's a good question. That's a, and a great sound effect. I know, I just wish it would um, stop now. Yeah. This roadcast of Pro is amazing. Mm. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? I wish I knew um, how to use it all. Anyway, that might be another lesson when you come over and we get that could be a lesson over some wine. I, I don't, know, I don't know how to, I don't know how to, to use it properly because you don't have so a sound engineer. I, not, mate, I can't even edit. That's one of the reasons why I haven't done a podcast is because I, I don't want to edit because I know it'll be so disappointing in comparison to everything else that I've done mm. uh, in the past where I've had professional editors do it. But to answer your question with podcasting, it's a really good question. You should edit the things that are unnecessary. Take them out. If they don't make sense or they, they go too far down one track and they don't kind of follow the narrative of what you're doing, then cut them out. Yeah. And don't, don't burn them. Just park them somewhere else because might, they might be something that you can reconstitute with another, you know, another story. You know, um, all of a sudden people might be talking about sharks and you'll go and grab this piece about, you know, oh, America had these thoughts on sharks. Bang, it's there, right? Never lose it. Never burn it. Just park it. Um, so edit around that. Don't edit to the point, though, where it feels like the conversation is edited. If right. the conversation feels like it's edited, it sounds like it's edited, you've done too much. Yeah. Okay. It, it should feel like it's, you know, natural pauses. And this is the problem with radio is that, you know, I used to tell production engineers this very thing. The first lesson I would tell production engineers, young kids, uh, usually, was don't be afraid of silence and don't edit with your eyes, edit with your ears. Mm. Oh, right, because the they're looking at peaks and troughs, right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. They're following a red line and watching it go up and down, up and down, and they're finding the edit points because they've, they've learned to edit visually what is an audible uh, medium. It's it's insane. Mm. So I say to them, don't be afraid of seeing dead air because a pause is a good thing. A pause is, is a... Is a, a um, mechanism for for something else. It is not a mistake. As I've just done then. So yeah, see, I said, and, and I did it too. Okay. But if somebody cuts that, if somebody was to cut that pause out, if you were to cut that pause out, yeah. you lose the emphasis. Yeah. And so, and go on, sorry. I was going to say, and with, with sound effects, uh, you should you should add them if they're going to add to to the, the sense of place. Right. That's not it. That wasn't it, wasn't it? <laughs> 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 oh, I suck at this. Um, I want to talk to you about something I saw the other night. Uh, I'll do that in a sec. But penetration of um, – Hello. Hello. Pen- penetration of the market of podcasting. Um, so do, how do you go about – okay, I've got this podcast. Here I've, I'm coming up to 100 – episodes as you know i'm getting ready for season two with hmmg thanks very much um and acast and so if i'm going down that line how do i uh how do i ensure that i'm getting penetration into the market do i get my guests to also put the podcast up on their social platforms 
do I do I do competitions? Do, how do you how does a podcast become successful? How's Osha done it? How's Joe Rogan done it? Yeah, well, Joe Rogan now is at the point where you know he leveraged it. He re- leveraged relationships by getting people on with high profiles. That they would then announce that they were on his podcast and would feed the audience back to his. So there's a reciprocity there. Reciprocity. Whereas now, you know, he's, he's probably in a position where he has to say no to people because he knows that all they're trying to do is just get him on as a guest yeah. in the hope that he will then promote them. Amazing. So. Um, yeah, that's that's that is a really actually quite even still a very valid and intelligent um, decision to make about you know you get people on who have got a presence to help promote you. Um, careful about the tinsel, you know, right. bells and whistles and tinsel and you know all the shit that it actually doesn't matter. Like you know, stupid giveaways. If the giveaway is something that people really want, give it away. Mm. If it's something that you just want to give away, then all you're doing is handing your garbage on to somebody else. Right. Yeah, got it. And so that um, social media landscape at the moment, I noticed something the other night. I can't remember the name of the social media platform or the group, sorry, on Instagram. It's not Shit Adelaide, but it's something like that. And they had... um, Brown Cardigan? Yeah, and they had, yes, Brown Cardigan. So something I've noticed lately with maybe a new generation of comedians or even social media personalities is the fame around the Instagram, um, let's say, you know, the brown cardigan. So they had, they had, um, they had Carl, Stefanovic. Carl Stefanovic and, and he looked uncomfortable and, but they were very talented. Whoever was, whoever was doing the podcast, the guy there was very talented, obviously, mm-hmm. and possibly stoned. Um, you know, whatever, whatever blows your hair back. But um, but that that's a different type of comedy and medium, isn't it? Where they're using Instagram as their platform for comedy. Yeah, and look, it's it's a valid one now too. It's uh, the the parameters for how you entertain are massive now. Yeah, you know, uh, you know the old days. You know, it's true. You know, the old days of when I started in my career, it was radio, television, and live work. That was it. Now there's Zoom, you know, each week I, I host a, a Zoom um, uh, show mm. um, on Friday afternoon called In Vino Veritas, which is... In wine we trust. Comedian. Hey? In wine we trust. It's my old school. No, in, in wine there is truth. Ah, oh, sorry. It's my old school Latin. In, in wine lies the truth. I need to go back uh, and look at the books. So, and as you know, Bram, I'm really into wine and I, uh, so I sit down with a bottle of wine and my guest at the other end has the same bottle of wine mm. and we open up the forum for people to ask us questions about whatever they like and we sit down, we answer them honestly and genuinely and we just drink wine and it goes for just awesome. over an hour. And I put a lot of work into that. So I put several hours into the construct of that. I do a lot of research. I get my stuff squared away. So that, and invariably on the day, almost nothing that I've really prepared actually goes the way right? it goes. But <laughs> that's not the point. That's about the planning. Yeah. Um, but that's now that's a legitimate form of, of entertainment, and that's you know not just a result of COVID. After COVID, that sort of entertainment um, forum will still be around. Yeah. It's just become very very uh, prominent because comedians like myself we can't we can't leave our homes to go right. and work. You so know, where do we go? We can't perform to people live. We can't do television shows are all off at the moment. Mm. Radio stations are closed. Uh, so it's, it was through necessity, but that's right. often, you know, the mother of creation. Innovation. Yeah. And so I was going to ask you about, I'll go back to Brown Cardigan just quickly. So, so they've, 
they were doing that sort of stuff before lockdown. That that mm-hmm. show the other night that they did that pot, um that uh, Instagram live that was produced like there was there was no I saw there was notes there they designed a song they had a schedule they had guests come in at certain times there was a slickness to that which was actually quite yep. impressive and a, yeah they're professionals yeah they're professionals like they are and they're and they're very bright and very mm, very very uh, bright very funny and very articulate yeah yeah I really enjoyed it um. And so what, what I wanted to ask you about Zoom, for instance, like, for instance, the, the new book that I've written, The Commando Way, which you've got a copy of, what which I was... Which is excellent, Brent. I've read the entire thing. It's brilliant. Cool. I'm going to provide you with some quotes you may or may choose to may or not choose to use. I shall. Uh, but if I was, I'd use them because they're brilliant. Um, oh. If not, I'll ask Osher Ginsburg to get some. Oh, nice. Um, I was thinking of uh, actually doing a Zoom live once a week and reading one of the chapters prior to it being released and then opening it up to people to talk about that chapter. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But this would be a paid Zoom. Is that the right thing to do as an artist or not? Because I notice yours is free. I'd pay to go and watch you drink wine and be a dickhead. Yeah, there's different levels of free to, you know, is it is it free to the public? Being free to the public does not necessarily mean it's free from you, right? Ah. So radio is free, but somebody's paying you to do it. Right. And so saying something like, hey, it's a, a donation of whatever you can afford. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can right. do that. Mm-hmm. And that's what we do with uh, Inventor Veritas. We don't charge people to watch it. But, you know, like it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people tune in every week. Mm. Um, and some of those people choose to throw money in the tips jar, which we then use. Like I don't touch a cent of that. Mm. We use the money that's offered through the tips jars to keep the, keep the wheels spinning and keep the content for free. Right. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, because there's obviously a bit of work to it as well and we also, too, you know, have to take care of the comedians too. Mm. So um, I would, with that book, for starters, your, your book is good enough that people should pay for it mm. and, and read it mm. um, in whatever form. If you, my advice to you, and I mean this is kind of, you know, on the other side of the curtain as it were, mm. but my advice to you, Bram, would be anybody who's bought the book mm. um, then can have a chapter by chapter uh, description or a zoom. Like once a week, you go through the zoom mm. um, and have a, 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 a meeting with people who you know have already invested in you, have invested in your product, and invested in your story. Mm. So then each week, those people are invested. They can come on board and they can ask you questions. So they say, Bram, uh, in your chapter about uh, leadership, mm. uh, I had two questions about this. And then they can ask that and you can answer it. You're adding value to something that they've purchased. That's what you want to do. Mm. Brilliant. Thanks, mate. And I appreciate it. I'm not going to lie, Brad. I surprised myself with that answer. Yeah, no, it's good. It's given me a lot to think about this morning. I think you made me look more scholarly than I am. Oh, no. I mean, people would be surprised to hear just how much information you know about the First and Second World War, I think. I think they'd be very surprised to know how much you know. Um, you're Look, almost a, you're people, almost a historian. I think people are generally surprised when they find out that I'm not brain damaged. Well, so you uh, sort of remind me you know, of a younger Peter Fitzsimons, you know, with regards to um, how much you know about history. Yeah, but I've got a wicked set of hair, and I don't need to wear a do rag. So you know, there are some differences. But yeah, having said that, I read Peter's books, and I think they're fantastic. Yeah. So. Yeah, I do, I do like the history and I, I really enjoy your podcast. And I, I you know, speaking about podcasts, because that's essentially what you got me on to talk about, Bram, is 
is that your your podcasting because of your your background in, in the military, you listen to advice, you hear advice. And one of the chapters in your book is about listening and and you know not just hearing but listening. And there is a massive difference. Whereas talking to somebody like yourself about how you can improve a podcast or build a podcast, mm. I know that you're listening. So that's an that's an investment in my time. I'm happy to outlay because I know that you will take it on board. Mm. But then the reward for me is when I listen to your podcast after we've had a discussion about them and I've air checked them and given you some notes on, on what I think you could do mm. to then hear that instantly mm. uh, brought to, into the podcast is extremely rewarding for me because, you know, so many times I, the biggest grief I have with trying to help people is people who ask for advice, but then don't want to take it. Mm. Yeah. And I think there's this cyclic um, mentor mentee relationship between people, which um, if you're humble enough to let it happen, then you can, it can be very rich relationships. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, Oh, and this is the thing too. So sometimes you can be the mentor, but the person you're mentoring is you. You know, you're they're actually helping to mentor you. Yeah, right. It, I think mentoring is always a symbiotic relationship. Mm. Hey, thanks. I know your time is money, mate. So um, I'll see you on Friday night with a bottle of red. Good man. Thanks, Bram. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Merrick. Appreciate it, mate. This has been the greatest and best ever podcast. <laughs> you too. Tribute. You too. <laughs> Tribute. I'll send you the backup audio so you can edit me out. Okay, gang, that's it for another episode of the Warrior You podcast for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening to Merrick Watts talk all things media, podcasting, sharks. Um, so this is the back end of the podcast, and we have a special club for those that have listened all the way through. It's the back of podcast club. And this week's code word is going to be comedy. If you private message me, comedy, and if you share the podcast with your friends on social media, then you'll be in the running for one of this week's Warrior U podcast t-shirts. So again, comedy is the code word. You can direct message that to me. And you need to share this week's podcast on your social media platforms. And if I line the two of those up, then you're in for the running for a Warrior You podcast t-shirt. Have a fantastic week, everyone. I've got some ripper guests coming up in the next few weeks. So stay tuned. See you later. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.